Well, good morning. Hope that y'all are doing well this morning. It's been good to be here to, to study God's Word with y'all this morning in the first hour. Uh, if, if you're not, if you haven't been, if, if you haven't been coming to that and, and you're able, I would encourage you to do so as it's always a good thing to be able to gather with our brothers and sisters and, and to study God's Word with each other. It's part of, part of how we're expected to grow and to sharpen, to sharpen each other. This morning during the sermon, we're going to be continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where I, I started a series uh, for us going through the Sermon on the Mount the last time I preached, and we're picking back up there this morning. So if you want to, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we'll be spending our time this morning. Matthew chapter 5. But as we're continuing this series in, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we, we can always kind of have in the back of our head, we can be thinking about the Sermon on the Mount as, a, as, as the profile of a citizen in God's kingdom. That is, in essence, what Christ is describing here in Matthew 5 through 7. It's a profile of a kingdom citizen. Our, in our first lesson, we talked about the Beatitudes in verses 1 through 12. And the Beatitudes describe the general character of a kingdom citizen. A kingdom citizen is, is a person who recognizes his or her own spiritual poverty and, and has someone who has an insatiable desire for God's righteousness in his life and in the life of others. That, that, is, that is what the Beatitudes, in a nutshell, tell us about a kingdom citizen. So that's verses 1 through 12 of Matthew 5. Today we're going to be focusing on verses 13 through 20. Verses 13 through 20. And, and just for, for future reference, uh, I know these first, these first two lessons have been short little 12, 10 verse lessons, something like that. We're going, we're going to be dealing with bigger chunks as we, as we move on into the later parts of chapter 5 and chapter 6 and 7. But these first two lessons and these first two sections of text that we're looking at are, are really, well, they're at the beginning of his sermon for a reason. They're, they're very important to, to the teachings that he will give throughout the rest of the sermon. So that, that's why we're spending, a, we're spending two sermons just on these first 20 verses in Matthew 5. It's because the, these things tell us very important things about kingdom citizens, uh, which he will go into more detail about later. So the section we're, talk, we're taking today, 13 through 20, is kind of, you, can, you can think of it kind of as a bridge section in the sermon. It's a bridge between the general character description and the Beatitudes. It's bridging that section with the specific practical description of how kingdom citizens live in the rest of the sermon, with the rest of chapter 5 and 6 and 7. So this morning we're really going to be dealing with this bridge section in verses 13 through 20. Because in verses 13 through 20, Christ tells his audience who, 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 who can be a kingdom citizen. And he explains the great and the noble impact that these kingdom citizens will have on the world. So, enough talking about the text. Let, let's read the text. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he opens this passage talking about salt and light. And, and in verses 13 through 16, these are, these are very well-known passages. The, the phrase salt and light gets tossed around a good bit. Uh, and so, so these are things that we're familiar with, at least the words that are in, in these passages, we're familiar with these words. Um, and often the phrase salt and light, at least in my experience, often that phrase is used to refer to, refer to kind of the, the general and the vague idea of being a good example. We talk about being salt and light in the world, and we talk, we're just talking about you know, being a good example to people who we run into in our daily life. Um, but there's a lot more to what Christ is saying here when he talks about being salt and light. He's not simply saying, go out and be a good example. There, there are some very important lessons here, and we're going to unpack those in the next few minutes. <clears throat> Something that, that I've that I've learned from people who are, who are older and wiser, more knowledgeable than I am, is that when you're reading scripture, whether you're reading a gospel account, whether you're reading an epistle later in the New Testament, whether you're reading a book of prophecy in the Old Testament, when, you, when you're reading these things, in a way it's like you're reading someone else's mail. Because these things, none, none of these, of, of course all of the truths in scripture apply for all time, but there was, at one point, a specific audience that all of these books were, were written to. And when we are reading these books, we, 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 would do, we would do ourselves good to think back to the setting that these, that these books were first written in. We would do good to think back to the people to whom they were first written. So let, let's try and do that this morning as we're reading this Sermon on the Mount. This sermon, when Christ first preached it, was preached on, on a Galilean hillside in, in first century Palestine. It was preached to, to Jewish peasants. That, that's, who he, that's who he's talking to in the Sermon on the Mount. It's just your, your everyday common Jewish peasant living, living in, in Palestine. That's who these words are spoken to. First century, so no, no modern technology like we have or anything like that. So when Christ says that they are to be salt and light. Well, when we hear that we're to be salt and light, we, we have some things in our head. But when, when Christ tells these, these first century Jewish peasants that they are to be salt and light, they're probably going to be thinking about, that they're going to interpret those words differently than we are just because of how they lived back then versus how we live today. So let's think about salt first. To us, salt is, or at least me growing up, salt is a seasoning. Salt is something that you put, you, we have like a salt shaker you, on your table, put it on your food when it needs to take, when you need more flavor in your food. That time, didn't it? 
There we go. All right. Sorry about that. So, salt and light. What would that mean to a, to a first century Jew listening to Christ preach this sermon for the very first time? <clears throat> to us, it's just something you put on your french fries, right? That's what salt is. But to the Jews back then, th think about what they had or really what they didn't have. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have freezers. They didn't have ice boxes. They, didn't, they had no means of, of cooling things in their house. So thinking about meat, we just throw, our, we throw meat in the fridge or in the freezer. But what would, what would people do back then when they needed to store meat? Because think about it, you have a cow or, or a sheep that you slaughter. That's a lot of meat. You're not going to cook and eat all of that meat the very same day that you're slaughtering that animal. So how, how do you preserve meat? Well, you use salt, right? We, we, and we still use salt today from time to time to preserve meats. But that would have been like their only, their main source of preservation in this time is salt. So, so salt, when they're, when they're hearing Christ talk about salt, they're hearing him talk about something that is, is primarily used as a preservative. They're thinking about salt as a preservative. So it, it keeps meat from rotting, right? So that's what they would have heard. That, that's what Christ would have been getting at when he says you are the salt of the earth. earth. He, he's trying to get across a message having to do with preservation. So now that we're kind of thinking like that, now that we're thinking about salt as a preservative, what is Christ saying when he tells his listeners that they are to be the salt of the earth? Well, he's saying that kingdom citizens will be people who help preserve a decaying world. Just as salt keeps meat from decaying, kingdom citizens are going to be people who help keep this world from decay. As the destruction of sin eats away at God's good creation. Kingdom citizens, people who are, who are desperately seeking God's righteousness, kingdom citizens will act as instruments of his righteousness. Kingdom citizens will help bring about God's right order in a world that is marching toward disorder. That is how we are salt and light, or, or salt specifically, excuse me. That is how we, we act to preserve this world. That is how we act as a preservative in this world is we, we act as instruments of God's righteousness and participate in his plan of righteousness for this world. And, and you know, what, what does that look like? What does it look like as we act to, 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 to further God's right order in this world? Well, kingdom citizens will be people who help others respond to the love of God. That makes sense, right? As, as sin is, is encroaching on God's good creation, as sin is, is claiming people who God created, who God made in his image, as kingdom citizens help those people respond to the love of God, then, then that is God pushing back sin. That is God staying the rot of sin in this world. And so that's part of, that's part of how we, we act as salt and help preserve this world as we help others respond to the love of God. The kingdom, another, another way that kingdom citizens act as salt is that we will be the ones there to comfort those who are hurting. We will, be, we will be the ones to comfort those and help those who are being oppressed. The, you know, the people who are most severely experiencing the pain and the suffering that comes with living in a broken world, we will be there to help them. That, that is how we push back against the consequences of sin and, and, and keep sin from rotting away at God's good creation. This is what it means to be salt of the earth. This is what it means for kingdom citizens to, to help preserve God's creation.
to, to help preserve against the rot of sin. So what about light? Salt and light. Let's talk about, about the, other, the other part of this phrase. Again, what, what, would, what would these first century Jews be thinking about when they hear the term light? When he talks about putting a lamp on a lampstand and, and lighting up a house. What would, that, what would that mean to them? Again, think, think about the setting. They don't have electricity. They don't have ceiling lights. They don't have street lights out in the street that might shine in through the windows when it's dark, when it's dark at night. When it's, when it's dark in the first century in your home, when it's nighttime, unless you have a lamp of some sort, it's going to be pitch black in your house. You're not going to be able to see to get around. You're going to be tripping. You're going to be stumbling over things. That, that, was, that was what it would be like to not have a, a lamp in your house when it's dark outside. You wouldn't be able to see anything or be able to do anything. You'd be tripping. You, you, you'd be injuring yourself. It's not safe. That, that's the thing. It's not safe. Darkness, especially in the first century, was not safe unless you had a lamp. <clears throat> and when, when, when Jesus is talking here about... Uh, um, I jumped out of order a little bit. We'll come back to the city on the hill. But for, for the light on the lampstand, again, for, for Jews who, who would not be able to, to see in their houses at night without, without a lamp, this would, this, would, this would hit differently than it might to us if we just flip on a light switch. <clears throat> so thinking about light in, in this context, what, what again, let's apply this to the kingdom citizen because that's what Christ is talking about. How is a kingdom citizen supposed to be a light on a lampstand? Well, just as, as the, the literal lamp, light on a lampstand in the first century would drive out the darkness in the house, would make it safe for you to move about. You, would, you wouldn't be stumbling about anymore. So, kingdom citizens, we are lights to the world. He says it here in verse 15, we, we, provide, we give light to all who are in the house. We, we are able to, to dr help drive out the darkness. Of course, using, using God, God's power, we are to help drive out the darkness in this world, and we're able to, to help keep people from stumbling around helplessly. That's what it means to be the light of the world. That's what it means to be a lamp on a lampstand. Is we drive out the darkness of sin in this world, and, and we help uh, we help keep others from stumbling and, and from, from from injuring themselves. It's it's not the picture of you know a flashlight where we're we're like shining the flashlight in certain dark parts and we're we're pointing out people who are sinning. That's not what he's talking about here. This is a light that illuminates the entire house. This is, this is a light that brings relief, that, that saves people from stumbling. That's what he's talking about. It's not a, a self-righteous light or anything like that, but it's a lamp that will provide light to keep others from stumbling. And let, let's move back and let's, let's look at the city on, on the hill as well. And this is a similar message. Again, thinking about, uh, thinking about living in the first century here, and when you think about traveling in the first century, there are no cars, no, no headlights, no street lights, or anything like that. So you really don't, tra you wouldn't travel at night in the first century. That's dangerous. That's, you're asking to get robbed when you're tra if, if you're just traveling out through the country at night in the, in the first century. So you wouldn't do that. But imagine, for whatever reason, you are doing that. You're caught out 
in the middle of nowhere at night with no, no lights, no lamps or anything like that. You're, you're worried, you're scared that something bad is going to happen to you. You may not even really know exactly. You don't have your bearings. You don't know where you're going. But then up ahead, you see a city that's set on a hill. You, you see the, the lights coming from that city, from the homes in that city. And what would, what would be your thought? You know, when you're, you're stumbling around at night in the country and you see that city, you're going to be thinking, I, I, I want to get there. I need to get there because that means safety. That, that means security. That means I don't have to be scared or wandering anymore. That's what Christ is talking about when, he's, when he says that kingdom citizens are called to be a city set on a hill. Again, it, it pairs with, with that idea of, of a lamp illuminating the entire house and keep, keeping people from stumbling. We, we, are a, we are a beacon to people who, who are stumbling about in this world. We are a beacon of hope, a beacon of light, as, as we can point them to the God who saves all of us. That is what it means for a kingdom citizen to be a city on a hill. So what is the... But, but thinking about salt and light, taking, taking both of those things that we've talked about, both preservation and illumination... What is the ultimate goal of those things? What's the ultimate goal of being salt and of being light in this world? Well, Christ tells us in verse 16. It's so, so that men may see our good works. Right, no, no, it, there, there's something else there as well. It's that men may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's the point. It's so that God will be glorified. That is the point of being salt and, and help in participating in God's plan to push back the, the decay of sin. It's so that God is glorified when we do that. That's the point of being light in, in a dark world where people are stumbling around blindly searching for something. It's so that, so that we can show them God and that he might be glorified in their lives as well as ours. That's the point of being salt and light here. Because there, there's, there's nothing about being a kingdom citizen that is self-serving. There is nothing at all about a kingdom citizen that, that is focused on being self-serving. The goal of the kingdom citizen is always that God will be glorified in their actions and that they will influence others to glorify God as well. So Christ tells his listeners here that they are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. They are to be participants in God's plan of righteousness for this world. But perhaps one of the most radical things about Jesus telling them this is, is who he's telling it to. Because again, remember, these are, these are just simple Jewish peasants. These are not the proud, strong Romans who, who are ruling the known world at the time. He's not talking to the wise Greeks you know, of Athens or Corinth or people like that. He's not even talking to, to the Jewish elite you know, the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not even talking to them. He's talking to, to, to Jewish, simple Jewish peasants, people who would be the lowest rung in society, people who, who the world would look at and say, you know, they're, they're more or less worthless. They, they don't have any power. They can't do anything. They can't affect any sort of change in this world because they don't have any power or anything like that. But Jesus is telling them that you are the salt of the earth, that you are the light of the world. That they are the ones whom God will use to help bring about his plan of righteousness in this world. It's not the people who the world would think. 
And, and that's something that we need to make sure we remember. And we need to make sure that we don't buy in to, to the world's wisdom that says you have to have power here on, on this earth in order to bring about good, in order to affect change. You, you don't, the, the world tells you that, that, that you have to have power here on this earth. But that's not what Christ is saying here. Because the world is not changed by gaining, holding on to, and using worldly power. This world is not changed by, by gaining influence with a large group of people and then wielding that power. That's not, that Jesus never once calls his disciples to do that. This world is not changed by gaining, holding on to, and wielding political power. That's not how we change this world. That, that, that is never once talked about in Scripture. Instead, the world is changed when, when a bunch of nobodies, which is who these people would be to the world, this world is changed when a bunch of nobodies start living like God created them to live. That's how this world has changed. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message that Christ is getting across here in Matthew chapter 5. We don't need worldly power to change things. In fact, worldly power is something that we should not be pursuing. It's something that intoxicates. and something that makes us rely on ourselves and not on God and his power. But when we recognize... Go back to the Beatitudes. When we recognize our own spiritual poverty, when we start desperately seeking God's righteousness, hungering and thirsting after his righteousness, then that is when he can use us to change this world for good, to, to change this community for good, the people who we interact with. That, that is what it means to be salt and light. And that is how God, that is how we change this world through God's power. So that's verses 13 through 16 of this passage, but as I said, we're going through verse 20 this morning. So let's read the, the second part here again, 17 through 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to, to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> so this idea of, of not abolishing the law and the prophets, but fulfilling the law and the prophets. Christ, Christ in, in the starting in verse 21, which again, we're not getting into that today. But starting in verse 21, Christ is going to be making some radical statements that, that really fly directly in the face of what the Pharisees of that day taught. Not what the law taught, but what the Pharisees taught. He'll make statements like, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And, and when he's doing that, he, he is directly combating things that the Pharisees taught that were not in the law, and that in fact, in fact detracted from the law. So he's, but he's, he's about to be doing that. And at this point in his ministry, he's already had some run-ins with the scribes and the Pharisees. So when he, when he makes a statement in verse 17 that, he's, that he did not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them, he, he is, he, he's countering charges that may have already been bringing, brought up against him, and he's heading off charges that might come after these next several chapters. Because you, you can see how people 
who were indoctrinated by the scribes and the Pharisees could potentially misunderstand or misinterpret what he is about to be saying and think that Christ is contradicting God's given law. So he, he takes care of that here in this section by explaining, you know, no, I did not come to abolish or to change or to do away with the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. So, so if he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, what does that look like? What does that mean that he came to fulfill them? Well, maybe it's that he, you know, he was perfect. He never sinned. He, he never, uh, he, he kept the law perfectly. Maybe, but I would argue that that is simply observing the law. That's not fulfilling the law. He, he, he observed the law perfectly. So, so, so if that's just observing it, then how did he fulfill it? Christ came to fulfill the law, or let me rephrase that. Christ came to fulfill or begin to fulfill every prophecy from the Old Covenant. He was the fulfillment of every shadow and of every type that's found in the Old Testament. You know, you think about, there were, we're told there were things that the prophets in the Old Covenant prophesied about that even they didn't understand. They didn't even understand how some of those prophecies would be completely fulfilled. You think about the promises made to Abraham. Abraham had, had, could, had no idea what it meant, like what the ultimate fulfillment would look like when God told him that through your seed, the, the entire earth will be blessed. He, 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 he could have no idea what that was really going to look like. But all of those prophecies, all of those promises to Abraham, all, all of the types, all of the foreshadowing, it all points to Christ. So that's what Christ is talking about when he says that I came not to abolish, but to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill every type, every prophecy that there was in the old law. So, he, so we see that he was so much more than just the first human to ever keep the law perfectly. He was the culmination of everything that the law and the prophets had pointed to. And we actually got into, we actually got into this a little bit a couple of weeks ago in our, our Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, we were talking about the, the sacrifices in the old law and do, do they take away sins? Do they, have, do they not take away sins? Like how, how does that work? We were talking about that some then a couple weeks ago. And I would argue that this is another passage that, that comes into play in that discussion. We were talking about Christ being the, the fulfillment of the old law, of the law and the prophets. Because the sacrifices of the old, old covenant were not, in and of themselves, enough to take away sins. Killing a bull or a sheep or anything like that Simply doing that does not take away sins. There, there's nothing magical, there's nothing spiritual about just doing that. <clears throat> he, Hebrews 10 says as much when it says that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins. But then we also read plenty of places in the Old Testament where it talks about people having their sins forgiven. People rejoicing in the Psalms because their sins are forgiven. So how does that happen? How do people in the Old Testament have their sins forgiven if sacrificing these bulls and these goats doesn't take away sin. Well, the short answer is Christ. But we're, we're going to dig a little bit deeper than that. <clears throat> God knew before he gave the law at Sinai, before, he, before uh, you know, Jacob and his family were saved in Egypt, 
before the promises to Abraham, before the beginning of this world, God had his plan. He knew what he was going to do. He knew that he was going to send Christ, and that Christ was going to have to die to justify his sinful creation. That, that, was, that was already planned, and what, what can we say about something that God plans to do? It, it's as good as if it has already been done. And so, God knew he was going to send his son to die. He knew that sacrifice was going to be made. He knew that blood was going to be shed, that, that, that perfect, innocent blood of Christ was going to be shed to forgive the sins of his creation. He, that was going to happen. And so that blood, we, we look back on that moment in time when Christ, when Christ was crucified and when that blood was spilled and then when he rose again on the third day. We look back in time to that and we see the, the blood of Christ, you know, we may use the phrase, flowing forward to us today to justify each and every one of us and to justify everyone who has lived since Christ died. That blood, that sacrifice, it, it flows forward to justify us today to justify everyone who lives a life of faith toward God. But again, God, God already knew that. God didn't have to wait to make sure that, that, was, that Christ was actually going to be crucified and, and rise from the dead. He, he knew that was going to happen. So in a sense, that blood that was shed that flows forward to us, it also flows backward to those who lived a life of faith before, before Christ came and died. That same blood that justifies our faith would also justify the faith of our Jewish brethren under the old law. Because you think about it. Blood of bulls and goats does not take away sin. So whenever they offered a bull or a goat for forgiveness of their sins, they were acting in faith. They act, Every sacrifice that the, that the Jews made for the forgiveness of sins was an act of faith. Every time they slaughtered an animal for forgiveness of sins, they were acting on faith. They were saying, God... You told us that this is how we get forgiveness of sins, and we believe you. And that is why we're doing this. No, 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 no matter that killing an animal, simply killing an animal doesn't grant forgiveness of sins, God told them this is what they needed to do for their sins to be forgiven, and they did it, and they trusted that he, would, that, that, that he meant what he said. They acted on faith. And here in Matthew chapter 5, Christ is pronouncing that he is now that faith made sight. That all that, that the faith that had been demonstrated for centuries leading up to him by, by the Old Testament Jews, that faith has now been realized. His blood is going to be spilled so that, that, that they can be justified for for their for that they can be justified and forgiven of their sins. So this is also what it means that Christ came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And just, just very quickly, as an as an aside, Christ is, is putting a whole lot of emphasis on the law and the prophets here, on what we would call the Old Testament. So, if Christ our Lord claimed that He was the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, what does that tell us about how we should be treating the Old Testament? It probably means we should treat the Old Testament scriptures with reverence, right? That, that we should study the Old Testament so that we might be drawn closer to our Savior, that we can be learning more about Him. <clears throat> when you read the old, because when you read the Old Testament, you will see God, 
We will see his attributes, and, and, and we will see his son. That's what Christ is telling us here. There, there's a mindset that I've, I've seen from time to time, and I, I will say I have not seen it in the short time since we've been here. But there is a mindset that we should spend most of our time focusing on the New Testament. Because that's, you know, we're under the New Covenant, right? So we're going to spend the majority of our time studying the New Testament. We might study some Psalms, we might study the first part of Genesis, but really we're just going to, we're going to spend most of our time just studying the New Testament. But when we do that, when, when, we, when we focus on the New Testament so much to, to the exclusion of studying the Old Testament, we are completely undermining the foundation that the New Covenant is built on. That's what Christ is saying here. He, he said, we, we claim Christ, we, we, we claim to be his children, we talk about how we're under the New Covenant because of his blood. Well, Christ is saying, who I am is the fulfillment of the Old Law. <clears throat> God's, God's word is God's word. The New Testament is not more important than the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is not more important than the New. They are both of equal and of great importance, as they are God's words to his people. And, and, and we, would, we would do good to make sure that we remember that. <clears throat> so Christ came to fulfill every type and shadow of the law and the prophets. It's verse 17. But then verses 18 through 20, Christ is talking about the need for kingdom citizens to embrace the entirety of God's law. And we're honestly just kind of talking about that, the Old and the New Testament. And in this context, again, thinking about the first context when he preaches this, he's talking to Jews. He has not died yet. The Old Covenant is still in effect. The New Covenant has not been ratified by his blood. So when, when, he, when he says in verse 18, uh, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished, when he's talking about these things, He's talking to them about the Old Covenant. That's what they're, that, that, is, that is what it means to the people who he's first preaching to. <clears throat> However, remember, this whole sermon is about what it means to be a kingdom citizen. And the principles of obedience to God and, and, and reverence for his word are principles that apply no matter what covenant you're living under. In fact, those principles, talking about obedience to God, reverence for his word, we see those principles applied even before the old law was in existence. The old law didn't come into existence until Sinai, until after the children of Israel had been delivered out of Egypt. So and we have an entire book, the entire book of Genesis, <coughs> taking place before the old law. <clears throat> but even in the book of Genesis, we see people who are practicing obedience toward God people who, who are listening to his word, who are revering his word, and are, are obeying his word. So these are principles that apply no matter what dispensation, no matter what covenant you might be living in. And so here in Matthew, Christ is again emphasizing the need for a, a holistic reverence for God's law and for the spirit of that law. And verse 20, verse 20 seems to imply so is he, sorry, he, he's talking in verse 18 and 19 about not, not ignoring any part of God's law, about, uh, about applying all of it, studying all of it, living by all of God's law. And then he makes the statement in, in verse 20, he says, for, for, so this is referencing what's happened before, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So verse 20 implies that his statements in verses 18 and 19 are centering around the Pharisees. Because you think about the Pharisees, instead of being justified by faith, the Pharisees made their righteousness about keeping what they thought to be the most important parts of God's law. In Matthew 23, Christ is going to chastise the Pharisees for this exact thing, for, for tithing mint, dill, and cumin, while neglecting things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And he says, you ought to have done all of those things. But they were, they were focused on you know, the, the idea of tithing. They would go out to, their, to their, their herb garden and actually like, count the number of leaves on each of the plants to make sure that they were giving you know, exactly, whether it was 10% or 20, there are some different numbers, but to make sure they were giving those exact, that exact amount, make sure they were tithing the exact amount. And people will look at them and go, wow, they are so righteous that they are, that they are focusing that much on, on what God wants of them. That Christ says, you know, no, you, you, you might be doing that, but you're neglecting things like, like mercy, faithfulness, and justice. Things that the entirety of the law is built upon. <clears throat> so, so, so here in Matthew 5, Christ is calling on those who would be kingdom citizens to do better than that. To do better than this righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees try, try and put forth. And he's not telling them, you know, you see what the scribes and the Pharisees try and do? You need to try and do that. You just need to be better at it than them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that righteousness, quotes righteousness, that they are, that they're presenting, that they're presenting is not righteousness at all. In fact, it, it is just, it is simply self-righteousness. And they bind things on people that, that they themselves do not follow. And again, this, and I think I mentioned this before, him, him coming out and saying this, him calling out the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees like this, would have been shocking to his listeners. Because we, we look at the scribes and the Pharisees as, as the bad guy in the Gospels. But to his first century Jewish listeners, the scribes and the Pharisees were people to look up to. They were the people who really knew the law, who could teach you the law. They were the people who kept the law the best. And Jesus is saying, you need to be better than these people. Your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. <clears throat> but again... That righteousness that they portrayed was a fake, man-made righteousness. They tried to order their lives around the parts of God's word that they thought were most important. But really, probably more likely, they tried to order their they tried to order their lives around the parts of God's word that were easiest to keep. It's it, in a way, it's a lot easier to go count the number of leaves on a plant than to to daily live a life that is filled with mercy justice and with faithfulness to God. That's a lot harder than just going and counting his beliefs. So Christ is calling, is calling his kingdom citizens to do more than that. He's calling his kingdom citizen to, to, keep, to keep God's law, to have a, a reverence for God's law, and to have a reverence for the principles that that law is built upon. Christ is calling his citizens to be people who order their lives rightly around the entirety of God's word, not just the parts that they want to, to deal with. Being a kingdom citizen means seeking God's right order in your own life. That means tearing out any selfishness, any self-righteousness that you may have. It means bowing your knee to your king and letting him cleanse you of every last bit of pride that might be left in you. That's what it means to be a kingdom citizen. We talk about wanting to be poor of spirit. 
being meek, being someone who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's what it looks like. It also means, means seeking God's right order for those around you as well. Reflecting God's light, like we talked about in the first part, reflecting God's light to keep others from stumbling about in this dark and dying world. Acting, acting as salt to keep away the rot of sin. This is what it means for our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is what it means for us to be citizens in God's kingdom. So this is the call. This is the call of a kingdom citizen. Are you answering that call in the way that you're living your life? Are, are you seeking God's right order in your, in your life and in the, life, the lives of those around you? If you're not, if you're not doing either or both of those things, you can't really do one without the other. So if you're not doing those things, then change. It's, it's kind of simple to say. It's harder to do. Change. Decide that you are going to seek God and His righteousness. That you are going to, to tear out any of, of the uh, any, any dark spots that sin might still that, that dark spots of sin that might still be in you. Commit to, to serving others, to helping helping to preserve this world by spreading God's good news, by comforting those who, who are who are feeling the brunt of sin in this world. Determine that you're going to do those things. Because if you're a kingdom citizen, it, that, that, that's what you're called to do. And you can't be a kingdom citizen without this. Without seeking God's righteousness, his right ordering, in your life and in the lives of those around you. So if you, if you need to, to, to commit yourself to Christ this morning, if you need for the first time to, to bow your knee to your king, to be baptized into his blood that was shed and, and, and to rise up a citizen in his kingdom, someone who is committed to ordering their lives rightly around their king. We, we have a baptistry. We would be happy to, to baptize you into this kingdom. If, if there are things that you need to make right in your life, if, if, you're, if, you, if you are aware of... of of things that you're doing or maybe things that you're not doing that you need to change so that you can better reflect the light of Christ, that you can, that you can do a better job preserving this world, then, then make, make the decision right now that you're going to do those things, that you're going to change, that you're going to be more like your king, that you're going to act more like his son who, who, who lived here on this earth. And the key to this is that we, we must live out of gratitude for what God has done for us, for the salvation that he's brought for us, All, always seeking his right ordering in our lives. So if there's anything that we can do for you, if you need prayers, if you need encouragement, if you need to be baptized into the kingdom, uh, you, you can let us know after services or you can even come forward right now as we stand and as we sing the invitation song.